The financial services game is changing and banking as a service is leading the charge. We've interviewed some of the industry's biggest change makers in our brand new six-part documentary video series, Decoding Banking as a Service, which has just launched on our YouTube channel. Jump inside the minds of some of the biggest names in the space and find out why Bass is so hot right now and how your business can reap the benefits. To watch the current episode, head to bit.ly forward slash decoding Baz. Okay, let's start today's show. From 11FS, this is FinTech Insider News. This is our last new show of the year. So for one last time in 2020, this week we bring you Go Cardless and Ramp announce brand new funding rounds, Zinja drop out of the Australian fintech market, and Cash App launches a fashion brand, perfect for the last minute Christmas shopping for the fintech fan in your life. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 489 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and today I'm joined by my wonderful colleague and co-host for today, Simon Taylor. Uh, Simon, happy Christmas, my friend. Uh, Merry Christmas, sir. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well. I think we were just saying it's going to be a fun show today. I think it will be. What a year for fintech it has been. What a year generally, but my goodness, what a year. Um, like the Bitcoin price, I'm probably a little bit too preppy right now and, and too full of energy given how tiring the year's been. Um, but my goodness, there is so much news. Like all the news happened this week and we can't cover it all, but uh, thank goodness we've got some great guests. Some really great guests to run through. Absolutely. What is a wonderful selection of stories. Um and who those guests are. So making her FinTech Insider debut, we have Catherine Burkett, the CFO of Go Cardless. Catherine, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Our pleasure, um, absolutely. And um, joining her and making a welcome return, we have Keith Gross, Head of International at Plaid. Keith, great to have you. Welcome to the show. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, as always, our pleasure. Um, okay, excellent. So um, we have run through the roll call. So why don't we dive straight into our first story? This first story comes from TechCrunch and concerns Go Cardless raising a whopping $95 million in Series F funding. Um, and this one is absolutely hot off the press, um, having only been announced today. So Go Cardless announced that it has raised $95 million in a Series F funding round. This latest fundraise led by Bain Capital Ventures follows 46% year-on-year growth for Go Cardless, despite the challenging economic environment. It brings the total raise to date to $240 million and its valuation to $970 million, bringing the company really within touching distance of that much coveted unicorn status. Go Cardless says the funding round will fuel its open banking strategy, accelerating delivery of next generation bank to bank payments. And Go Cardless's open banking strategy aims to provide an end to end recurring payment solution for its merchants, expand into the adjacent e commerce market, enable businesses to collect international payments, and provide businesses with a complete open banking processing service. So, um, Catherine, I think it'd probably be remiss to come to anybody else first on this one. Um, would you mind giving us um, a little bit of uh, the background on this one? And I guess um, probably in the context of what 2020 has been like um, for yourself and the guys over at Go Cardless. And also congratulations on what is a, a really, really impressive round. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, I mean, 2020 has just been obviously, you know, a year like no other uh, for uh, for everyone. Um, and, you know, frankly, uh, when we sort of hit the COVID, you know, in March, we generally had no idea the impact it was going to have on our business. We always felt that long term there would be, you know, would still be doing what we wanted to do, which was be the best uh, for making recurring payments. Uh, but of course, you know, something like this changes everything and changes, particularly, you know, when you are, you know, ultimately a loss making business and ultimately needing, you know, requiring funding in order to, to fuel the growth. Um, so from my perspective, you know, I'm uh, much older than most people who exist in, in the fintech world. Uh, and so I have lo- lived through crises before, albeit none quite like this. Um, and I think that was hugely helpful, to be fair, to, to us and the team as we um, as we sort of assess what we did. Uh, but also it gives me, you know, 
I sort of got great pride now in reflecting back on the year um, because, you know, frankly, the business has outperformed my own expectations. You know, I'm a CFO. I was probably a little bit more conservative. Uh, but actually, we've got a lot closer to where Hiroki thought we'd end up um, from a revenue perspective on a recurring basis and actually where, where I did so, which is great. And so, you know, really pleased that the business has shown resilience, that we've also been able to help a lot of our customers uh, to sort of collect their payments uh, quicker, because ultimately for everybody, cash flow is even more important uh, than it ever was. Uh, As far as the sort of funding round, um, I was uh, sort of saying to my own team earlier today, because we've only just announced it sort of internally as well at at the beginning of this week. um, And I came off, you know, a two week uh, sort of break in the summer um, where I'd, you know, just been here, you know, to to Norfolk, not on the uh, normal exotic holidays that I'd love to be going on. Uh, But anyway, came back and and there'd been a board meeting where I was away. So I wasn't actually party to and and one of my team had been on. And I remember getting this sort of WhatsApp or something while I was away saying, "Mm, I think you may be better prepared because we might be thinking about fundraising. Um, you know, I had deliberately set out through COVID uh, a strategy where we, we didn't have to fundraise until we got to the end of um, 21 at, at the absolute earliest. Um, so not only did we have, you know, quite a lot of cash on the balance sheet from our previous Series E fundraise round, but in addition, we also put in a debt facility with SVB, uh, really just to show up the balance sheet and make sure I felt comfortable that we've got enough cash to see us through. And we won't be forced into a fundraise uh, when it, you know, it was becoming apparent we we're running out, running out of cash. So that was a very deliberate strategy. So coming back off holiday, you know, I'm sort of okay. What does all this mean? Basically, you know, we'd always had approaches, um, you know, from from various different investors who had either missed out on previous rounds or who had become more interested in Go Cardless. Um, so we decided um, because we'd also become very did quite a bit of research around open banking and what it could mean by putting open banking technology and accepting sort of one-off payments alongside our, our already existing technology, which allows us to accept recurring payments. So we were quite excited by what open banking meant, but it, it clearly with the COVID backdrop, et cetera, also slightly cautious about you know, how much money of our existing resources we should be investing at this point in time. Anyway, as far as to say that the board sort of asked us to uh, speak to a very limited number of investors. We had done no prep. So, um, you know, I'll put it out there that, you know, we've done this this fundraise without having things like a five-year plan in place, without having a data room ready, none of our investor decks, you know, doing it. And we were very clear with the guys we were talking to that, you know, this was the case. And I, but being me and, and having the experience that I had, I was like, you know, this is really not the way I like to do things. I like to be, you know, all, all sort of showed up and have all my answers. And anyway, um, you know, thankfully, uh, the business is in is such good shape. And also that we put a lot of time and effort, in all honesty, since I joined the business two years ago. It's sort of getting things like our reporting and our analytics just into a, into a much better shape. So we spoke to around five or six investors. We had, you know, several offers um, for the, you know, to invest in this round. Also, our existing investors kind of coming along, along with the lead, where was, you know, is Bain. Uh, chose Bain uh, to progress through to sort of detail DD. Went to a very extensive detail DD. So having been told this was going to be a very light touch fundraise, turned out to be not so quite, quite so light touch. Uh, but super proud of my team, actually, as well. And many others within Go Carlos who, you know, we managed to, sort of cope with the due diligence really well and, and get through it all and you know hope as you know close close the funding um round uh, as of uh, actually tuesday officially was when the money uh, came into the bank so it's all super exciting it now means the way i feel about this it's been a very intense period as you can probably imagine the last um, sort of three months uh, for me and my team particularly but as well as our legal guys and and even engineering uh because there was technical dd done I can I can just imagine that it has been incredibly tough, and it's so interesting just to hear that perspective. I know you mentioned um, Hiroki, your CEO, um, almost being surprised that you guys were going to raise. Now I know the plans weren't until next year, but it's off the back of that really incredible growth and um, such an incredible success story in, in the wake of the sort of year that we've had in 2020. So great to be able to move into that on the front foot, as you say. But Simon. Um, what a what a what a year for um, sort of online payments and I guess really sort of open banking enabled payments and we'll see that as a consistent theme I think as we move through the show. 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, Go Cardless, of course, founded in 2011, one of the OGs of fintech um, and helping businesses get paid. As fintechs got really hot, people have realized how much of a problem that is and how massive it is. Uh, I saw a great study from Credit Suisse that suggests you know, the, the ACH and wire payments in the United States to, from B2B absolutely dwarfs retail card payments. It's a massive opportunity. And open banking potentially enables that to be much slicker, much more automated, uh, and so I'm, I'm not surprised that one of the one of the most well-known fintech investors, Bain Capital, is really keen to to get exposure to it. But of course, um, Keith, you guys know a little bit about open banking as well. Do you think? How do you think about the uh, importance of open banking in the payments landscape, especially with an international lens as well? Yeah, I think honestly, there's one thing, and you put it correctly, that that COVID has showed us is that payments, particularly for businesses, has never been more important than now. Uh, I think uh, one thing that we saw in the U.S. when you were trying to distribute the payroll protection loans and the PPP programs, so trying to provide relief to small businesses, just getting the funds to businesses was broken and you're mailing checks in the mail. And it's kind of crazy to think we're in 2020 and that's still how this works in some countries. So um, obviously, uh, I'm really involved in the, the open banking payments world in the U.K. And I'm super excited to welcome GoCardless to the club. We'll all get together for, for open banking payment drinks after this. Um, but uh, I think the UK is leading is leading the charge here in terms of making open banking regulation actually provide value in the payments world. And so I'm excited to see that start to spread around the world because it is a really big problem still. And we're seeing that move. The cards uh, have really come into the uh, sort of the business to business payments quite a bit this year with you know Brex and Spendesk and Soldo and many others starting to solve in that space. But also businesses like CoCardless and then the open banking space. And then all of the people that are really revolutionizing that get paid space. Uh, it, it's, good, it's a good time to be in, uh, in the B2B payment space, isn't it, Ross? It absolutely is, although you raise an interesting point. You know, I think you're looking at lower cost alternatives um, in terms of these new types of open banking enabled payments. And you wonder, I mean, Keith mentioned checks, but I think you've also got the likes of um, Visa and MasterCard that probably stand to lose out there. Um, we have absolutely rattled through time on this story, and I know we could sort of go round and round, but Catherine, really keen to give you the last word on this one. Um, what should we keep an eye out? What's sort of coming next for GoCardless off the back of this really exciting race? Well, it's, it's really everything, you know, almost that Keith has said as well, because what, what we believe we're uniquely positioned to do is to take advantage of the fact that we understand the banking networks in, in several jurisdictions, not just the UK, you know, be it Europe or ACH or um, BEX down in, in ANZ and, Austin and, on, and Australia and New Zealand. You know, we really want to be able to capitalise on that by combining what we're really excellent already at, which is, you know, collecting recurring payments but also pulling into that the, the benefits that you're going to get with um, the open using the open banking rails, as, as I think of it, because I'm not an engineer or technical person, but, you know, effectively how I think of it, uh, in order to complement that with being able to accept one-off payments in a much more straightforward way to improve things like pay protection and, and reduce fraud and all of these things that obviously make then that a much more attractive payment mechanism uh for whether it's you know b2c or b2b businesses and i think you're completely right because you talk about cards i know as a cfo for many years of a bit of you know b2b businesses i hate credit cards i hate spending put on credit cards frankly um you know and being able to control it and also the integration that you can get and just making it faster making it much less painless for our customers or our merchants for them to collect their cash flow you know that is our mission and i truly believe that You'll see some great product launches. We move through uh, 2021. We're, you know, fully committed. We're gearing up our, you know, ramping up our hiring, uh, you know, so that we've got, you know, enough capability in-house to ensure we can really support this. And absolutely right, you know, Keith, as you said, is we're, we're doing this internationally. We're not just focused on the UK. Uh, very, very much looking at attacking the US, um, Australia, New Zealand and, and the European markets as well. Yeah, it's it really does feel like we're at a, an exciting tipping point. I think, um, particularly with payment in the context of open banking, is definitely one we'll be keeping a very keen eye on. Um, so I am going to move us on. Um, our next story concerns Plaid um, and their launch of the payment initiation via QR codes. This one is also absolutely very hot off the press. Also being announced today, um, literally as we speak, actually. Um, Plaid are launching a new experience for payment initiation using a QR code authentication that enables faster and easier payment authentication on desktops. 
Today, any transaction over £30 subjects the payer to strong customer authentication or SCA safeguards, which are time-consuming and deliver a clunky user experience. Um, the QR code authorization eliminates the obstacles. Um, across the UK and Europe, a recent study showed that a staggering 80% of consumers had scanned a QR code at least once, while 40% um, had done so in the last week alone. What's more, over half of all respondents said they expect to use QR codes for payments in the near future. Um, Keith, much in the same way with Catherine on the previous story, I think it would be remiss not to come to you first on this one. Um, it'd be great if you could just start us off by giving us a little bit of the background um, on this one, where it's come from and, and, and sort of what it means for you guys moving forward. Yeah, I guess uh, let me start by unpacking. I think one of the terms you use there, I'm sure people listening outside uh, the UK and Europe might not recognize, which is SCA or strong customer authentication. And this can be thought of as sort of a similar offshoot of multi-factor authentication, but basically a step up where you're asking for further authentication before approving a fund. And that's something that is coming into force now as part of PST2 and is making payments more difficult, particularly on desktop, particularly for card on file. And so what we've built is a way to take open banking payment initiation from desktop into mobile experiences using QR codes, where you're not typing in anything. You are just face IDing or fingerprinting into your banking app, clicking yes, I approve, payment done. And it's actually a fantastic experience. And for me, I think it's a little funny because QR codes have been around for forever, but 2020 has been a year of QR codes. Uh, you know, I don't know if you've been to a restaurant since uh, since we opened back up, even though we're back down in lockdown here in London, but it seems like every restaurant you go to now, you're scanning the menu with the QR code, you're checking in with the NHS app with the QR code, and they're actually incredibly useful. And so the fact that now Apple and Google have built them into the cameras themselves, you don't need a separate app to scan QR codes, it really makes this a fantastic user experience. Um, and so we're excited to build on the potential of open banking payments, which is sort of the theme of today, it seems, uh, of this show, and really launch this QR experience to make payments easier for users on desktop. And I think, Keith, that, that desktop payment thing, like it's it's hard to uh, underestimate the, the drop-off that merchants would see uh, in payments when strong customer authentication comes in and the drop-off of conversion. And like any friction at checkout is just, death for for those merchants and i know um stripe and Agin and many others have done a lot to try and help out with that but open banking is kind of a different way of looking at it because you do have that natural push to the app right you're being pushed inside your banking app experience and in order to do that you can give that strong customer authentication so um what that means is it starts to become super slick as a checkout and there's been a whole bunch of businesses and startups that are doing this kind of thing now as well there's uh, payvine that just launched and there's um there's a few of the smaller ones coming. So this could be an area that gets really, really hot. Um, Catherine, I wonder about your perspective on this as well. Just um, given QR codes, have you been using them? And do you think it's going to be useful in a B2B context as well? I mean, I think anything that makes the experience for the person paying easier is just better. I mean, I know it myself. You know, you can imagine I've I have two uh, sort of almost teenage children and the stuff amount of stuff I buy online for home and et cetera. You know, it's like, and them as well, that they think it, it needs to be very easy. They can't be bothered typing in credit card details or, you know, whatever. And I think basically that making that user experience easier in a B2B world as well is, you know, it just means that, you know, it just opens up all our realms of possibility. And I know for us at GoCalus, one of the things we are absolutely focused on is that end user uh, experience and, and the ability, as you've said quite rightly, you know the amount of the, of the amount of successful payments that you lose because it gets too cumbersome or too uh, too difficult to actually authorize your payment. You know, it, it's, it's it's enormous for for many many businesses out there. So anything that's effective going to make that better is just a good thing. And I, I can definitely see this all moving to the B two B world. You know, I think GoCardless started off as something that people thought was more B two C. In fact, we're having the most success now in the B2B environment because businesses still need to be paid by businesses. And I ran a business for 18 years where one of my biggest issues and my biggest headaches was credit control, was getting you know my customers to pay us for basic internet services or connectivity services. And you know to the fact that we can resolve that and anything that just makes that, that experience easier by simply clicking 
for me, it's just going to be it's going to be game changing. Getting paid on time, the power of that with a single QR code from a desktop that kicks you into a mobile app. There's the the quality of that, Ross. Ross, do you think that there's an opportunity to see some offline to online here as well? Like, could open banking creep into the real world outside a desktop? Yeah, I mean, I think. Look, I, I, I mean, it's going to keep coming up, isn't it? I know we, we've sort of looked through these stories, and I think open banking just comes up as a massive winner here. Like as we go through all of these stories, just everything that we've seen from um, the rise in e-commerce, in online payments throughout um, lockdown, and I think it's so interesting to listen to what Keith was saying about. Um, I've always looked at QR codes as a bit of a solution in search of a problem. Um, and I just wonder if the combination of the friction introduced at checkout by strong customer authentication and that sort of drive towards contactless experience that we've seen throughout the pandemic, yeah, if that might if that might drive that, I, I, I'm interested to, to sort of throw that out into the group. Yeah, it becomes a bit of a pincer movement, doesn't it? Yeah. Like actually, you've got the the pandemic driving. Hey, I've used QR codes before. Like this is this is kind of normal now. And then the other one, which is open banking, will it ever happen? Will it ever happen? Will it ever happen? Oh wait, it happened. And now for using open banking to collect data and to aggregate, it's kind of normal. Certainly for the early adopter community, using it for payments isn't that far away. And and then you've got this regulation in the middle that could that could kind of make it happen. I mean, obviously in, in China for a long time and, and other parts of the world where they didn't have card rails, it's been the norm for a very long time. But let's not forget the Chinese migrants and other migrants um, from, from around the world who are used to using QR codes uh, and then that potentially having ubiquity. It's weird to imagine that a lower tech solution than like contactless payments could actually win out because it is lower tech, because it is so ubiquitous. Uh, I remember the, there was a meme for a long time of a flowchart that says, should I use a QR code? And there was an arrow down and it said no. And then the arrow went down, but what if? And then the arrow went down, still no. Oh my God, no. And and this was very, like, that was my perspective back in 2010 when I worked for a payments processor who was starting to think about how do they use QR codes and banks have been playing with this for, for quite some time. But sometimes you just have to admit when uh, technology's had its time and it has its moments and, and recognize that what was true then is is not true now. Yeah, and um, you know, I think I think Keith made a really interesting point um, as well about the the fact that the, the the major operating systems now in Google and Apple have the um, QR scanners inbuilt into the camera. This isn't the case as it was previously, where you have to download a separate app. Keith, I'm I'm, I'm keen to um, understand from yourself: is is this something that customers are already using? What's the what's the feedback been so far? What's the what's the uptake? Yeah, in fact, um, if you go to our blog, you can see, but Receipt Bank is one of our early users here, and they're a B2B company. And so they're letting businesses pay invoices from their bank using this QR code. And so it really does have great applications in smoothing out the friction that exists in B2B and B2C payments, frankly. Um, But that's a great example of a customer that's live with this already. And I mean, this is something that, um, this isn't something that, you know, it's important that we get the emphasis right here. This isn't something that you guys have just launched in response to the pandemic. This is something that you guys see as being a real aid to customers and something that obviously you're going to um, carry forward post-pandemic. Yeah, I think I I fundamentally believe biometric authentication is the smoothest experience you can offer now. And you can offer that on mobile. It's built into everyone's phones. So it's just taking wherever you can find a rough authentication experience and taking it into mobile, into that smooth biometrics, it's going to be a better experience for everyone. And that's a really good point because once you've, it's kind of like that thing that you always had on the browser. Once you go to the checkout and you say, it was like the little button that was like, would you like to save your card details for next time? You don't have to scan this QR code every time. The first time you do it, you scan the thing with that merchant. And then between the browser and the the kind of the desktop and the mobile app, you go back to that place and then uh, it, it, you should get the prompt on your mobile device to, to just biometrically log in and then bang you're dealing with something that feels as slick as any point of sale which which could be lovely yeah super super intuitive and i think you know what what's really nice about this for me is from the 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 perspective of the user this is a genuine upgrade when it comes to that delivered user experience um and but it's also compliant right and i think when you tend to look at who is like just crazy about removing friction at the point of sale, you tend to think of the likes of Amazon 
And then you tend to think of them sort of butting their heads up against um, regulation and, you know, often tending to not implement friction at the point of sale. So, for example, the um, MasterCard Secure Pass with a verified by Visa to minimize that friction and actually taking the heat um, from the regulator to do that. But actually, this is sort of best of both worlds, right? When I when I first saw there was a, a business that does just this, um, mm-hmm. I, I described them as being as if like Fast.com and Plaid had a baby. Turns out Plaid also had a baby that looks like Fast.com and from an experience standpoint. And, and it's not surprising. And I'm sure like GoCardless and everybody, like the opportunity in this space to reduce friction. But also I start thinking about when you combine open banking data with this frictionless payment experience that is more secure, like the opportunities for loyalty and reward, for uh, reconciliation on the merchant side, to really manage all of that data, like for in a B2B context, like the, the imagination starts to really run wild in terms of what you could build on the back of open banking. Uh, it's, it feels like it's 1% finished almost, Ross. Yeah, I think that's a lovely point, right? This is so much more than just an upgrade in um, the delivered customer experience actually like opens itself up to an absolute world of, um, of possibilities. And again, I think it's something that we're excited by and really something that we'll keep an eye on from uh, from here. So, Keith, uh, congratulations, obviously, to you and the guys over at Plaid. Um, okay, so we're just going to take a quick break. Uh, so let's hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They are reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. MLB isn't just another hard-to-remember acronym. It stands for Minimum Lovable Brand, the 11FS approach to creating modern, iterative brands to help cut through the noise and create a genuine connection with customers and their culture. Brand is everything in this digital-first world, and we want to help you get it right. To learn more about Minimum Lovable Brand and to download our free handbook, head to bit.ly forward slash 11FSMLB. Okay, let's get on with the show. Our next story comes from the Sydney Morning Herald and concerns Neobank Zinja blaming COVID for pulling the plug on Australia. So Zinja announced on Wednesday it would close all bank accounts, refund customer savings and hand back its banking license after what has been seen as a challenging year for the company. The bank's chief executive, Eric Wilson, told customers via email it had been an incredibly tough call to terminate banking services. But after COVID-19 and an increasingly difficult capital raising environment affecting who is willing to invest in a new bank, we are convinced that the best thing for Zinja is to pivot away from being a bank. The fintech said it would give customers seven days notice before closing all high interest stash accounts after it banned new customers from joining in March. Zinja said it would refocus the business on its US share trading platform Dabble should circumstances allow. Dabble was launched in July and aims to connect Australian investors with the US stock market with no brokerage fees and an annual subscription. Um, Simon, I'll come to you first on this one. I mean, it seems like we're covering a lot of uh, success in the show this week, but I guess this is the other side of the coin. Yeah, being a, uh, a challenger bank is a hard place to be, um, especially with the um, capital constraints uh, environment anyway. And I think given the the wobbles and given some of the questions around profitability around the world, uh, it, it's uh, it's sad to see this, but it's also probably not that much of a surprise um, given how costly it can be to get one of these things off the ground. Also, when you look at the uh, the kind of the banking business model, the taking deposits and lending, unless you're starting to get into uh, more cross-selling or unless you're starting to wrap it as a packaged account, as we're seeing from Revolut and as we're seeing from others now, it's harder and harder to get to the revenue, especially in markets where uh, interest, um, sorry, um, interchange revenue is very, very limited. So in the US, for instance, Chime and Varo do quite well out of interchange. These are the fees that uh, get paid to an issuer like Chime whenever one of their customers uses their card to make a payment. 
that's much, much less in, in many parts of the world than it is in the US, especially because of the quirk of regulation in the US called the Durban Amendment. So actually, it's these tiny details behind the scenes with regulation sometimes that can make such a difference. And uh, yeah, there are some neobanks and challenger banks that are raising capital. I saw Lydia in France just uh, raised another uh, $89 million. Uh, you know, Tinkoff Bank is going from strength to strength. Chime looks like it's going from strength to strength. Um, but actually, the, it, despite two funding rounds in 2020, uh, Zinger doesn't seem to have been able to get there. And profitability is is so so important. Um, I mean, Catherine, I guess as our resident CFO, um, you may have a perspective on on some of these challenges yourself. Yeah, no, and I think you've always got to be able to show you know a very clear path to profitability. You know, it, when you particularly when you're doing a fundraise. Uh, and actually, for me, in a sense, what COVID did for Go Cardless, I mean, I always felt it when I joined because, you know, to be perfectly honest, I had to assess the risk. You know, I was joining a business that was loss making. I needed to do my own diligence when I joined. And I was pretty comfortable that worst case scenario, the UK was a profitable business then. But what actually what COVID has done is that we we took a decision to freeze costs uh, because we obviously weren't sure initially how, how things were going to kind of go, sort of going to unwind. And actually what that did is proved, you know, quickly our EBITDA burn just reduced because our top line continued to grow. So that is, was a great uh, and I think was a really big part to why we've been managed to do what we've done with this fundraise is because you can see, you know, yes, that profitability is there. It's just you decide you're either going to go for growth or you're going to go for profit. And, you know, you make a call which one and we're still sort of early stage enough in, in most of our jurisdictions to be kind of comfortable making the losses that we are and that we've got this, you know, run to direct to, to, to profitability. Uh, but it is, it's vastly important. And if you've got a situation where losses are just expanding and you just can't see how your costs are exploding at the same time as your revenue is, you know, at the same pace as your revenue. So you, and you can't see the, you know, the revenue outpacing the cost base. You're not really going to be, you know, be able to win, you know, win. And I, I think particularly in a very, very regulated market, we're obviously under, you know, several regulations, but it gets worse if you're actually operating as a bank. The, the cost base is just so significant. Plus the kind of capital that you've got to hold in reserve as well. And all of that just piles up. And Australia, I have to say, you know, to be fair, we found some challenges, in, you know, in Australia with, with some of the things that we do. And we're getting through them all, but it is not as easy. And so it's not as easy um, an environment to operate in as, as certainly the UK and Europe is. And that's such a key point, those quirks of regulation. And Australia has been really thoughtful and progressive in terms of some of its uh, open banking regulations and how that's uh, been seen recently, Keith. But uh, I guess uh, as you look at this, what are your perspectives? Yeah, I mean, I I think you put it well. I think it's become uh, obvious to everyone that it's important for uh, neobanks to find a path to profitability. And it's a tough time to be a neobank business. Competition's really high. Customer acquisition costs are really high, and it's really competitive. So, as you put it, this is tough news, but it's not surprising news. I think the thing that's worth applauding here is this is probably a very hard call for a company to make, and to make the call at a point where you can return all the funds to customers and do the responsible thing. I think that is worth applauding there, because at the end of the day, banks are supposed we're supposed to protect consumers now their best interests at heart. And so it seems like they had to make a really tough decision. And I think they probably made the right one. And I think, yeah, I mean, in that context, so, you know, the, the Australian Prudential Re- Regulation Authorities had to step in to sort of reassure customers that it will ensure that all funds are returned. I know, obviously, Zinja have said that they will be. They've stated very clearly the, the, the periods there that customers can claim that back. But I guess there's a question here around how this very public failure of Zinja um, is likely to affect consumer sentiment in, in challenger banks and, and, and neo banks on the whole. What are your thoughts on that side? So I wonder, because you've still got 86400, um, you've still got a, a whole bunch of others out there that are really uh, pushing the boundaries in Australia. And uh, I, I don't think we've seen the last of the Australian fintech market by a long shot. And, uh, you know, there's so much happening there. Uh, it's really just the beginning. And there's there's more and more startups that I'm hearing about every other day. Uh, and, I, and I just think that um, to, to Keith's point, this is a classy way for for, for a story to end for, for one set. But out of this will come many, many others. And I, and I do think, actually, as I look at Keith's point about it, it's hard to be a challenger bank right now. Maybe the trick is to not be a bank or not for everybody. Like there's probably a lot of good business that can be done without being a bank, uh, especially as uh, providers are out there enabling things like payment initiation, enabling things like banking as a service. Like, can you do most of the things you want 
trying to do for your customer uh, and solve enough of a problem for them to justify a subscription income without being a bank. And actually, that I think we'll see a lot more uh, value in. There's really interesting companies at the moment in this space above being a bank that solve those broader, deeper problems. Uh, even in the business-to-business space, there's companies like uh, Modern Treasury that also help with getting paid early, uh, Mercury Bank that are helping not only with getting paid early, but managing cash flow and all of that sort of space. Uh, I saw an account for landlords the other day, an account for parents that go deeper into that problem set for a niche. Um, and people are willing to pay a little bit extra because they have because it's solving more of their problems. That doesn't need to necessarily be a bank. And so the, how that changes the market and the perspective, I think when when it became possible to become banks, a lot of people ran at it. But maybe that's not the right answer for everybody. And that's maybe my takeaway from from all of this versus like an 86400 and a vault that that maybe it is the right answer for them. And they've they've both, I think, leaned into lending quite a bit more than, than Zinja did initially. Yeah, I think that's a key point, um, and um, you know, one that we should probably emphasise. I mean, we've talked about how being a bank is expensive and it's capital intensive, um, and actually, that was probably exacerbated in Zinja's case because they were offering really high interest rates on their stash account. They had failed to sort of launch loan products, sort of interest um, products, and so it seems like the, the the business model wasn't actually all that sustainable longer term, anyway. And I think there was a quote from um, one of the auditors that they were massively dependent on raising investment in order to be able to continue. And it actually seems like the two equity raisings earlier this year, Simon, that you mentioned was really just to pre- prevent layoffs and to, to try to protect their balance sheet. So it's a really interesting one. Um, I agree with you that I don't think fintech in um, Australia will be too deterred. And actually, I think there's a really good opportunity here for those guys to learn from this and sort of come back better and come back stronger. Um, I am going to leave us there on this one and move us on to our next story, um, which comes from TechCrunch and concerns Ramp raising $30 million as the fastest growing corporate card in America. Um, Ramp is a US-based platform that launched two years ago with the goal to make every company financially fit. Um, Ramp has today raised $30 million with investors, including notably D1 Capital, an investor that typically only invests in late stage companies. Um, Ramp has reached $100 million in transaction volume, uh, faster than any other corporate card with exponential growth in the last few months. They're helping companies be more efficient by building sophisticated software to address the entire spend and expense management process. Along this raise, they're also launching ramp reimbursements to pay back employees for expenses that aren't made on ramp cards. With ramp reimbursements added to the platform, companies can now handle all of their expenses from a single tool. So to find out more, we spoke to Eric Gleiman, CEO and founder of Ramp. So let's hear from him now. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric Gleiman, the co-founder of Ramp, the first corporate card that helps companies spend less money spend less time, and ultimately build better businesses. Companies can sign up at ramp.com and in under 15 minutes get a corporate card that automates your accounting, offers 1.5% cash back, and helps the average company cut wasteful spend by $100,000 per year. Today, we're proud to announce that Ramp is the fastest growing corporate card in America, has grown by 20 times over since the start of the pandemic, and that D1 Capital and KOTU have co-led an investment round of $30 million into the company. We're grateful to the 11FS community for coveting Ramp since we launched early this year and are excited to be part of this community that's delivering next-generation financial services. So um, Ramp sort of, I guess, redesigning corporate cards in a way that ends up um, saving the company money. So it's not just about the the cashback rewards that... um, Eric mentioned, but it's also about helping them better manage their uh, spend and expense management. Um, A really neat proposition that I think, again, has probably found new relevance in the wake of uh, the pandemic in 2020. Um, Keith, I'll come to you first on this one. What were your your initial thoughts when you read this one? Uh, I mean, my initial thought, I'm I'm excited for the Ramp team and their growth. I I think they're great. I think this just shows 
how much room there is to fix things in B2B payments and just business payments more broadly. I mean, uh, you've seen Cladara just raise a seed round. They do something similar that, you know, there's Mercury Bank. There's all these startups that are trying to figure out how do we help businesses manage their expenses? And so I, I think open banking is part of that story. But this is just to me showing that actually this space that most people don't think about every day, there's just so much pain there to be fixed. Uh, and so I'm excited to see a bunch of different companies attacking that problem. That so much pain thing, like come back to the point on the previous one, that space above banking, rather than just trying to be another card, like figure out what the pain around the transaction is and solve that neatly. That's the the real value that seems to be accruing. Uh, we had ramp on home screen. So if, uh, if you have YouTube available and you really want to deep dive with the ramp product team, uh, we had them on for about 45 minutes talking through uh, how they've done Slack integration. So for expense management, one of the things they do is route it through Slack. So you can can, uh, they have a little Slack bot and you can uh, request an expense and then that gets sent as a DM to the approver and the approver can just reply to the Slack bot and kind of kick it off uh, that way. That is the kind of thing that a growth business will, a growth business probably uses Slack internally and that's a super easy install on top of the card they already have. Just A, the imagination to do that and B, the execution to do that in, in an early in their, their business's life is something I think we can all learn from. But it really comes from deeply understanding the problem space, like fall in love with the customer's problem, and then you can start to come up with creative solutions. For so long, banks have been packaging these commodity products. It's like, oh, it's a corporate card. And I, I can hear I in the back of my head is, is all of the bankers I used to work with and the objections they would raise when I would mention this stuff. So banker in the back of my mind is going, but that's a corporate card. We do those. Yeah, you do the corporate card, but you don't solve those problems. You don't solve the saving money. You don't solve for uh, easy routing. You don't solve for Slack integration. And like, oh, well, we're a bank. We don't do those things. Yeah, but Ramp does. And actually, that's where customers are going. That's where deposits are increasingly going. That's where mindshare is going. Um, and the the business to business space is, is really, really crucial. I, I really, really love that point. And I think that's what they've got so right in this instance. You know, they actually spoke to companies. They actually spoke to their customer base. They talked about things like the cost of rewards, and they actually realized that what mattered to these companies at the end of the month was having money in the bank. Um, Catherine, I guess, as a, as a CFO yourself, I mean, um, how does this sound to you? And, and how, how important are these types of tools? Uh, just so important. It's so where the world is going and needs to go because you know and I think you know I ran to say an organization of you know into it was two and a half thousand people you know spread across lots of countries con uh, controlling expenses and you know I, we tried to avoid corporate cars because you, you just had no idea where the, where the money was going really uh, and it is really important you understand spend it's not just about controlling it but it's also about understanding it and the analytics that you know a bank could give you are I mean it was just rub absolutely rubbish and you'd always be questioning well, what, what, you know, that credit card, what is it on? You know, and it's just kind of one liner in your management accounts or whatever. And it, and it builds up to a big number if you've got a lot of people, you know, with them. So you're completely right, totally right in, in what the guys have done in understanding where a problem lies and trying to solve it. And I've got to say, you know, coming into, um, you know, the tech world more than where sort of into it was, which was on the edge, but not, you know, more of a telecoms business really than, than a technology business. But seeing some of the software that's out there and, and what you can now start to do and how people really are thinking about problems and how you solve them. And so the, the, the resolution is not about having a load of people sat there going through credit card statements, but there's actually a technology solution that means that it all becomes automated. And as you said, things like approvals, if you can do that through something that we're all using, you know, I didn't know what Slack was, frankly, two years ago. You know, I use it literally on an almost like by minute basis now. It's, and, you know, that just becomes part of the, part of the way that you work. Um, and, you know, anything that can then bring that in and that integration to the other accounting side or ensure you can reconcile these things and everything happens happens automatically is just so important. And so, yeah, no, it's great. It's great there are options out there. And, you know, I, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, the, the big banks no longer controlling the world, frankly, and, and the fact we've got all these new players in is, is just a massively positive thing. No, and, and, and everything that they're doing, the combined effect is they're saying they're able to save customers an average of 4%. Um, on their, their spend and expenses every single year, which actually is a really dramatic impact on the bottom line for these companies. Um, Simon, just sort of last word on this, I'll, I'll, I'll give it over to you. Well, so I, on that though, 
I'd also imagine that there are a lot of folks that are in banks that are inspired by this. And let's hope that a rising tide lifts all boats because corporate cards could be so much better. And, you know, Spendesk are out there, Soldo are out there. You know, Brex has been really the flag carrier on a lot of this stuff for quite some time. It's better outcomes for businesses, but will we see the traditional banks react and start to make better products? I I really hope they do, but also you've got to be aware of, of... how these businesses go about really deeply understanding customer problems to be able to do that. That's the insight for me. Yeah, I think that's it. You know, and they're not just going after the corporate card space. Yes, they see American Express as one of their competitors. I think they also see expense management platforms such as Expensify and Concur and these guys as well. So um, again, I just think one to, uh, to really keep an eye on. Um, okay, I am going to move us on to our next story. So this story comes from... Uh, the BBC News. Um, the time is right for regulation, says Klarna, as they also announced plans to tell credit agencies if repayments fail. So Klarna plans to report missed and failed payments to credit reference agencies. Maybe the surprising piece here is that it does not currently do this. Uh, so Alex Marsh, Klarna's UK lead, said while the company only accepts customers which it believes can pay back on time, it freezes or closes down the accounts of those who end up missing too many payments or make none at all. Um, We work with debt collection agencies to support customers on payment plans. Uh, They, so in this context, they being the debt collectors, do not have the ability to report back into the credit reference agencies. Klarna have also said that they should be regulated by the FCA. FCA regulation would mean that Klarna customers can contact the financial ombudsman to resolve disputes with the company. Currently, they can't. And the FCA is reviewing how the deferred payment market is regulated in the UK, and the results are expected in early 2021. So, uh, Simon, I guess this has been a uh, a quite contentious topic for us this week uh, in our soon-to-go-live launch after dark, so I'll throw that one over to you. Yes, Chris, we did after dark the uh, buy now, pay later debate, do you love or hate? And it turns out uh, most of our listeners uh, are hating buy now, pay later, but it was pretty close uh, to to say the least. Um, And and I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that – Underneath the hood, the uh, the sort of the way that credit rating agencies work is is there's a soft check and there's a hard check. Soft check at a high level is uh, is this person who they say they are, um, and can we uh, have they had credit at some point in their history? What it doesn't necessarily do is tell you if they can afford the credit. It doesn't necessarily tell you uh, whether they're going to pay you back affordability and credit worthiness, which are two different things as well. Um, and then there's the hard credit check. And the hard credit check is, let's go look at all of the credit products you've got and let's figure out based on uh, your known last income, whether or not you could afford this. Now, the problem with a hard credit check is it always shows up on your credit file. And if you get rejected from a hard credit check, that shows up on your credit file, which in turn reduces your credit score. So one of the things that I, I guess when you're buying a pair of shoes, you could end up getting rejected for that credit and could end up losing out on a mortgage or something big in your life because you couldn't, uh, you weren't given credit for a pair of shoes, even though for the mortgage you were probably fine. So the the way in which the credit rating agencies have always worked hasn't necessarily helped these buy now pay later businesses, which have in turn developed their own credit models by trying to understand affordability in a different way. But not not unsurprisingly, you know, a lot of people think, well, it's a little bit too easy to apply for this at the point of sale. Is it really clear that it's debt? Wouldn't it be better if this was regulated? And so it's really interesting to see Klarna come out and be proactive on that front. But I'd love to see us, uh, especially if there is a bit of regulation here, not revert to just doing like, here's your APR and everything must be an APR now and you must do hard credit checks. Can we get a little bit more creative here? Can we start to use things like open banking to see what people's real affordability is, especially in a pandemic? Because like, actually, if I've just lost my job, my affordability may have dropped, but I may be paying all of my bills on time, which means I'm actually credit worthy. And so depending on what it is I'm buying, maybe I'm buying some things to start up a small business or to start up a shop. Like actually, if I'm buying a laptop on buy now, pay later, and typically I pay my bills on time, I may not be able to afford it now, but I may be credit worthy. So those details, I think, become really important. Sorry, I went on for a bit there, but um, I did a lot of research for that show and I wanted to use it. They're, they're such important 
points. And I think there's so many nuances, Simon, that I think you've drawn out there that the traditional kind of static credit reference score just isn't able to cope with. I think there's just something here around the regulation point. I mean, Simon, you mentioned After Dark and we're split out to Team Love and Team Hate, but I think irrespective of like the side that you are on in that debate, Catherine, I think everybody would agree that you know, this needs to be regulated and that there needs to be some forms of like consumer protection just baked in. Absolutely. I mean, you, you can't, I, I, I just, sometimes I struggle a huge amount with the regulation world. Um, you know, I came, you know, I had honestly no experience of, um, you know, of financial regulation. Telecoms is, is regulated to some extent, but nowhere near level the level that financial services are. But it can be, and you know, it's very inconsistent. It's also very inconsistent from different jurisdictions to jurisdictions. It's not also very clear necessarily what you need to do and what's right and what's wrong. And all of this like adds to confusion. But you definitely need regulation because anything that involves the transfer of money, in my view, uh, where that money is moving through, has to be, you know, done with with a view of of you know some oversight from uh, you know an independent third party. So I think it's, you know, completely right. And I think touching as well on the points that you're making about the credit checking, I completely agree with everything that Simon said. Uh, but interestingly as well, one of the things that we're thinking about is as we get more and more data on our merchants and also on our, the customers of our merchants is the ways that we can utilise that to also sort of help and, you know, um, sort of check effectively, you know, the, the best data collector payment or indeed whether you should actually even be Offering, offering that sort of, uh, you know, service to the customer because can they actually really afford it? Uh, and using some of the things that you've said to really get a true understanding of, of, of how a, either a consumer or a, a business it sort of behaves. And I think we will all get better at this. I think with the data, we'll start to use the data in a better way. So ultimately, it becomes fair as well because you want to be able, you know, I think the trouble with credit checking in, in my kind of view is it, it's so binary and quite often is wrong. Uh, and that's, you know, sort of craziness. And you can, you, you know, you can be clever enough to work out how you get it to say yes, you know, if you really want it to. So uh, I think just you're such a big world where you've got to get this working in a very different way. I completely agree. And Keith, look, I'm really keen to get your thoughts, um, p- particularly around the opportunities here with data, because um, I think they're huge. Uh, Yeah, I think Simon really hit the nail on the head for me, which is I think one thing that 2020 has also brought to light is how quickly and drastically different individuals and small businesses, financial lives and health can change. And frankly, credit score lags that by quite some time. So I think consumer permission financial data and, and especially that that is provided through open banking can really help solve some of these problems. But I think going back to the buy now, pay later, it, it this space has just exploded recently. I mean, a, a firm is about to IPO. Afterpay just raised. Um, obviously, Klarna's the most valuable private fintech. This this has really grown and ballooned very quickly. And so I think what's important is to think about where this is going and build regulation for the future, and not try and fit you know a square peg in a round hole here. And I think this is one where I'm glad fintech companies are talking about it. I'm glad regulators are looking at it because I think it is important. The key is to figure out how do you make that work for where this might be going longer term. And I think in general, it's good for fintech companies to be regulated and be open to being regulated. So I'm glad to see that as well, because I think that is, again, responsible, important part of consumer protections. It's making sure that the regulation is keeping up with where the industry is going. I I completely agree. And I think actually that's the perfect point on which to end that story. Um, Okay, we are going to move on now as we're getting to the end of the show, um, which kind of boggles my mind, actually. It's been a really fun show. Uh, Just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover, but that still deserve a shout out. Simon, do you want to start us off? Yep, from Finextra, Deutsche Bank, get better engineered job applicants after a tie-up with Google. Um, So the uh, halo effect after its recently announced partnership with Google Cloud apparently is uh, really allowing it to get better applicants. Uh, In July, uh, Deutsche Bank agreed a multi-year partnership with Google, um, and the deal also includes co-development of products by engineers from the bank and Google Cloud, with the two parties sharing any revenue that arises. This appears to have pushed Deutsche Bank back up the list of desirable destinations for ambitious engineers. Deutsche Bank is trying to jointly recruit engineers with Google as they look to work to increase the percentage of their tech staff from 30% to 50%. 
With whether the high-quality applicants prosper at the bank remains to be seen. In 2018, COO Kim Hammonds left after calling it the most dysfunctional company she'd ever worked for. Um, what I love about this is kind of the the power of not trying to do everything yourself. Um, I think for a long time, banks did all of the manufacturing and all of the distribution. And increasingly, recognizing what you're good at and what you're not good at is the key to succeeding um, and to be able to partner well. Um, and, and engineers want to work with the latest technology. There is a limit to how much money you can pay somebody to deal with uh, horrible tooling and a, and a work environment that just doesn't value engineers. And, and frankly, banking didn't value engineering as a skill set for a long, long time. It was a cost to be outsourced and a cost to be reduced. And that just isn't going to cut it anymore. And so it's not how cheap can I get these engineers for and how much can I outsource it, but it's who's my partners and how do I play to my strengths and work with my partner's strengths. So, yeah, uh, I like this story. Okay, our next story comes from TechCrunch and concerns Sweden's Tink raising $103 million as its open banking platform grows to 3,400 banks. So Tink aggregates a number of banks and financial services by way of an API. It has raised 85 million euro, that's $103 million at a post-money valuation of 680 million euro or around $825 million. It plans to use the capital to double down on expanding its network of banks and payment services in Europe. Tink already links up to 3,400 banks, covering some 250 million people and 8,000 developers using its APIs. The funding is an extension of a round begun in January 2020, where they raised 90 million euro. Despite the difficulties of 2020, it was a year of great growth for Tink, said Daniel Kjellin, co-founder and CEO of Tink in a statement. 2020 has seen payments powered by open banking take off. And in 2021, we expect to see this scale most prominently in the UK, then followed by Europe. So I guess this is another case to evidence the, the growth of online um, and open banking enabled payments in 2020. I think, you know, as we've said throughout the show, one to keep an eye on. Um, as to whether this strong growth can be sustained and then will ultimately scale in 2021, as suggested by uh, Tink CEO Daniel Kjellin. So again, another great story that sort of points to really a, a very strong um, growth trend. Indeed, Russ. And, and Tink was founded, I think, a year before Plaid as well. So they've been at it for a while. They're one of the OGs. Um, the next story comes from Finextra, and this is about Barclay Card shipping a mobile app for on-the-spot issuance of virtual corporate cards. So uh, the new offering called Barclay Card Precision Pay Go, I'm going to come back to that, uh, enables employees to create their own cards or request cards to be issued to them via their mobile phone. Uh, designed for remote working, uh, you can get the card and make a payment instantly without being at your desk. Um, and obviously, like all virtual cards, it could be issued for just the amount required for the specified period of time. Good that a traditional bank, an incumbent bank, is doing virtual cards. Uh, lots of businesses use um, Barclays and Barclay Card day to day. This is really helping small businesses with some of their problems. Um, once again, Barclays is really of the uh, incumbent banks showing it's very, very fast at, at sort of being a fast follower. So respect to them for that. But my God, the name Barclay Card Precision Paygo is not exactly competing with Ramp or Brex or Soldo or Spendesk, is it? Like, Better names, but well done, um, I guess, is my slightly cheeky take on this. Yeah, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Um, all right, and now our and finally story this week comes from the Wall Street Journal and just has the most wonderfully confusing headline. Um, I've read on one of these for a while. These clothes are hip to be square. Make of that what you will. Um, Cash by Cash App is an apparel collection that has recently been unveiled by payments company Square. Named after Square's multi-purpose digital wallet application, the collection features brightly colored t-shirts, naturally, sweatshirts, of course, hoodies, I mean, why not, and other apparel. It's already largely sold out or low in stock. The move comes after the Cash App has recently been name-checked in hip-hop songs, apparently up to 200 that are currently live on Spotify. So buyers can purchase the clothing using the Cash App. They also get a 25% discount for doing so. 
Gross payment volume that includes cash app use for business purposes was already up 332% in the third quarter from a year earlier to $2.9 billion, according to the company. The real gift might be to Square's investors if shopping with cash app becomes a holiday habit. I'm going to just throw this out into the virtual room for just sort of broad discussion. But before I do, um, I just want to sort of forewarn everybody that I don't think we're going to come across a more hot take than that in our show notes from our producer, Hannah, which is just a single line. It doesn't really get more hip hop than this. So um, (laughs) shout out to Hannah. Indeed. Well done, Hannah. Uh, Producer Hannah just rocking it this week as well on the uh, the, the After Dark production. Um, I'm disappointed in you, Ross. Uh, Hip to be Square by Huey Lewis and the News is a classic song that everybody needs to be aware of. And if you are listening to this on a podcast client, you do have my permission to pause now and check out Huey Lewis and, and the News and Hip to be Square. You need that in your life. That said, Cash App is culture. Like this, what better demonstration of the fact that when you build a great product, people actually enjoy it so much, it becomes ingrained in their everyday life. Um, and Cash App has done extremely well as a beachhead product because it starts out as this free person-to-person app. And I can't imagine a bank ever th- making that business case work. What, it's peer-to-peer and it's free? Yes, and it's also fantastically designed and really minimal and stripped back. But but that makes no sense. How will we cross-sell into it? Well, Guess what? They they figured out that you could do real time payments with it, and a lot lot more. So much so that people are now using it every day. And on top of that, this is in the same week that Square has done um, Bitcoin rewards inside of the Cash App card. So you spend every day, and they give you tiny fragments of Bitcoin as rewards. Like there, yeah. I mean, I I am known for being a big f- fan girl over Stripe, but Square, my goodness. Um, this is this is really something, but I, I want to know what are the hip hop songs we're going to start to hear that feature things. You know, we're going to start to hear a go cardless rap. Where's, <laughs> where's who's going to be quoting Plaid soon? Uh, I, I don't know of, of, of any plans on our side, but I, I think you you hit on something there where you said Cash App is culture. Uh, so we did a survey of U.S. consumers recently, and so vast majority of it. I'm going to miss the number, but I think it was either 65 or 70 percent said they fundamentally relied on a fintech app to help manage their finances during COVID. And that's what apps like Cash App are doing. And so they're becoming part of Mindshare, part of the culture. And so I think what this really shows, besides the fun part of the story, is when you, when you peel it back a bit, fintech is part of the mainstream now. It's part of people's everyday lives. It's entered, uh, to your point, culture. And so I think that's the really exciting thing here as well. Um, but also, I can't say anything because I'm wearing a plaid hoodie right now. So uh, that's... <laughs> Uh, I'm part of the the fintech swag group myself. I have to say, yeah, we, we, as I said, I've, I've teenagers in the house, and actually, you know, I bring home a go kart. I have got, you know, several also go kartless branded hoodies, sweatshirts, whatever, and they all seem to disappear. So, you know, I think you just don't know what you know these that age group and that uh, that generation find attractive. And I think if it, if it becomes part of culture. That that's all that matters, and they all want to wear the same thing. Ultimately, if you so. see this stuff as well, it's it's really quite bright and colourful. You see like, that'll go, work. Go. I can imagine if I showed it to my daughter, I'm sure she'd be on there saying, "Right, I need this." But but Cash App and TikTok and and let's say Cash App and OnlyFans, um, you know, there's there's a big crossover. You know, I got to say, like there is there is a community of people for whom um, finding ways of making money in hard times. You know, Cash App has been absolutely everything and has been a lifeline. Um, and for small businesses or for being able to look after family for somebody in distress, like to Keith's point, really really crucial. So no no surprise that some brand affinity. Um, there's a lot happening in that space without question. And and Ross. Um, I think it could be the Christmas gift of the year. Like, get yourself some um, some cash up uh, swag. Make it happen. Like, let's donate this stuff to Ross. If you're a US listener and you have some of this swag, our very own Ross Gallagher needs some new clothes. He's not been outside much. Like, it is Christmas. This is the spirit of giving. If you're going to do anything this Christmas, that our own Ross Gallagher from 11FS needs that. I think I was affectionately known as the the worst dressed man in fintech before the pandemic. So, so that's probably a sign of where we're at nine or ten months later. Um, <laughs> as if that, as you know, that would obviously be a great gift. But I think as if the uh, the, the the world's most unexpected crossover between hip hop and R and B into fintech, um, I, I just think as if that hasn't been one of the uh, the greatest gifts already. And um, 
I am going to wrap us there. Um, I need to go away and furiously Google Huey Lewis in the news. Um, and so that just about wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Um, guys, where can people find out more about you? Catherine, we'll come to you first. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, just if you ever need any help with um, sort of payments as a business, anybody who's listening, who's CFO of be it small, medium, or even own large enterprises, you know, come and talk to us, go to our website, you know, contact me direct, frankly, uh, because we are all about trying to help businesses get paid. Wonderful. Um, Keith? Yeah, I think anyone in the open banking world come to, to plat.com and can contact us there. And I'm on Twitter at KM Gross. That's K-M-G-R-O-S-E. Love to hear from people there as well. Wonderful. Sign. S.Y. Taylor on Twitter. Find me on LinkedIn, Simon Taylor. Or check out 11fs.com where there's always stuff happening. Excellent. And as for me, you can find me, Ross Gallagher, on LinkedIn or at Ross Gallagher 07 on Twitter. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It really does help us to make it better and it also helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much 